scripture reading today is from Genesis 3, page 2 in your Pew Bibles. And before I read this, um, just a small blurb. Have you ever pondered what took place in Genesis 3? As we read the, these words, may our hearts realize that nothing less than cosmic treason was committed. And now God is angry, angry all the time for every sin committed against him. That includes your sin and my sin. Jeremiah, long a time, long time ago, wrote that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and wicked beyond our comprehension. So now we read this chapter desperately in need of forgiveness. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall eat, not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, and uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Um, Lord God, among the, sorry, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the, the man and said to him, Who are, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me, and I ate. That is true. She wasn't lying. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have not listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his name, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of all the trees of life and eat and forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the two at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed cherub the cherubims in flaming sword that turned every way to the guard the step the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word that has been read. We thank you for the benefit that it is already just in the reading of it. Now I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that which you have here for us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to stand in your presence, to come into your presence this morning through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we do not come alone. We come with others who preach the gospel as well. Lord, we thank you for Bible Baptist Church in Romeoville, Pastor Kip and Pastor Allen there, that you would continue to use that church and the spreading of your gospel, that as they meet this morning, as they open up your word and study it, that it would be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. Lord, that they would be faithful witnesses of your gospel along with us here in our community. Lord, uh, we thank you as well for Faith Bible Church and for Pastor Bob and Kevin and Jay there. And we thank you for uh, Kevin's coming and sharing the word with us just recently. We continue to pray for them. Lord, that you would, you would be in their midst as they open your word, that they would hear from you, that they, would, that they would hear your instruction, that they would hear your commands, and that they would follow you faithfully. Lord, we thank you uh, for this church, and we pray that they would continue to, as well to be a witness to our community alongside us. Lord, may your church be a light in a dark place. Lord, may we be salt in a tasteless world. May we be a city on a hill. May we proclaim your Son, Jesus Christ, as the only hope. May we do it faithfully, though it cost us. 
though it costs us everything, though it costs us our life if necessary. Lord, may we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're continuing our series here in Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 3, as Chuck read. The series is entitled Proclaiming Jesus in the Beginning. So it goes along with our theme for this year, We Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And today we're going to be looked at, looking at the revealing of Jesus here in chapter 3. Now, we're approaching Genesis with biblical theology. And as we approach it, I've reminded you this each week, we look at who Genesis was written for. Genesis was written by Moses for the people of Israel who were redeemed physically out of slavery in Egypt. So redemption is very important. And Moses' desire is to teach them about the God who has redeemed them and that the redemption that God gives is greater than mere physical redemption, but spiritual redemption is necessary. And the spiritual redeemer is greater than Moses. For us, we are meant to read Genesis in light of our redemption in Jesus Christ. We have experienced what Moses was pointing the Israelites towards. God's plan and promises fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, when we come to the New Testament and we ask, how did Jesus read Genesis? We are given direction in Luke 24 and John 5. We see that Jesus read the Scriptures as concerning Himself. We see that He he claimed that they bear witness about Him. That Jesus expected the Old Covenant believers to read their Old Testament and see Him. And Jesus expects New Covenant believers, those who, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ after His coming, as He has brought in this New Covenant in His blood, to read the Old Testament in light of Him. And so we've been coming to Genesis over the past couple weeks looking to see Jesus Christ. We've seen Him as our eternal Creator. And we've looked at how God created the world. And part of the reason that it was good is that it was laying forth this this background, this backdrop upon which the the stage of redemption was going to occur. We saw that redemption actually was planned prior to God even creating. And the purpose of creation is to bring about this glorious redemption in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we come to Genesis 3 and the revealing of Jesus. And today, our main point is this. We proclaim Jesus as the only solution for humanity's sinfulness. We proclaim Jesus as the only solution for humanity's sinfulness. Genesis 3 is probably one of the saddest parts of the Bible. It records the fall of mankind, yet does so, interestingly, with a lot of ambiguity. It doesn't give us a lot of details. I don't know when Chuck started reading in, in, at the beginning of Genesis 3, and you're like, in the serpent, and you're like, where did he come from? Like, and why is he talking? But God doesn't give us details on that. He doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. Rather, enough is told for us to know what has happened. 
humanity falls into sin. Enough is told for us to know that what has happened in Genesis 3 has clearly affected all of us. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a a German theologian who was executed by the Nazis, how he understood the ambiguity, the lack of detail in Genesis 3. He writes that, that the ambiguity was there truly to lay all the guilt on human beings and at the same time to express how inconceivable, inexplicable, and inexcusable that guilt is. He goes on to write, The Bible does not seek to impart information about the origin of evil, but to witness to its character as guilt and as the unending burden that humankind bears. The guilt of sin that we bear. Genesis 3 clearly lays the guilt of the evilness of sin on mankind. And this sin begins as James, the brother of Jesus, tells us. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1, 13 through 15. So today we're going to look at that progression. We're going to see that here in Genesis chapter 3. That progression of sin. We're going to start with this first point. We all share a temptation to sin. We all share a temptation to sin. As we come to Genesis 3, we see the tempter here, this serpent. Many, of, many people connect it to, to Revelation 22 where it says that ancient, ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. We see the tempter here coming into the garden, beginning to speak to Eve, the woman that God had made. And we see the temptation, this luring and enticing of her desires, like bait in the trap to a hungry animal. The animal scurries over to it to gnaw on it and satisfy its hunger like bait on a hook for a hungry fish. It's always fun to catch a fish. But what are you doing? You're luring it. You're enticing it. Your desire is to catch it, to hook it. Your desire is for it to come in there and then snap! You got it. There's nothing more thrilling, except for maybe once you actually get it in the boat. (laughs) You know, you you don't get too excited yet. You got to get it in, Right? Here it is, this luring, this enticing. We see it here. The serpent starts off by saying, did God actually say? The tempter here, casting out the lure, inviting Eve into a conversation. A conversation that is going to undermine the very commands that God has given. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman is drawn in. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the tree, trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Drawn in. The serpent, the tempter continues. 
his temptation, enticing her by a different narrative, by a new opportunity. You will not die, he says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's interesting, Eve, whom we're told is made in the image of God, now tempted with being like God. That the image of God is no longer enough. That the creature made to steward God's garden and God's word as prophet, priest, and king, this image of God is no longer enough. It's a different narrative. It's a new opportunity. It's the lure was cast and now it's enticing Eve in. And what do we see? So, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The woman saw. She saw with her own desire that it was good for food, delightful to the eye, desired to make one wise. We see here this, this description that James gives us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Surely this, the tempter played a role, but yet what does verse 6 tell us? She saw. She delighted in. She desired. And she gave in. The fact is, though, this teaches us about our temptation as well. My point is not that Eve was tempted to sin, but we all share a temptation to sin. Again, Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes, Did God really say? That is the utterly godless question. Did God really say that God is love? That God wishes to forgive us our sins? That we need only to believe God? That we need no works? That Christ died and was raised for our sakes? That we will have eternal life in the kingdom of God? That we are no longer alone but upheld by God's grace? That one day all grieving and wailing shall come to an end? Did God really say, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness? Did God really say this to me? Or does it perhaps not apply to me in particular? Did God really claim to be a God of wrath towards those who do not keep God's commandments? Did God really demand the sacrifice of Christ, the God whom I know better, the God whom I know to be the infinitely good, all-loving Father? This is the question that appears so innocuous, or that word there means safe or harmless. It appears so harmless, but through which evil wins its power in us and through which we become disobedient to God. Did God really say? Or maybe we ask the question, will God really judge me? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, the serpent's, the serpent's temptation is, you shall not surely die. Will God really judge me? Is it a big deal to him if I tell a little lie? If I take just a quick glance, if I say just a harsh word, do I think I know better? 
do I want to be like God and decide what is really important to him? I mean, I know what he's told me, but I think I know him better than he knows himself. Angry words are what, maybe, maybe we're tempted to think angry words are what they really deserve. It's really what they deserve. Lying seems like a wise way to get out of trouble. Just like the fruit was desirable to make one wise, maybe we think, well, I'm wiser than, than them. I can manipulate them. I can work my way around this and get out of trouble. Being with him or her just seems right. And of course, God just wants me to be happy. So what if he says, do not commit adultery? Doesn't he want me to be happy? We are all faced with temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This includes Adam and Eve. This is including you and me and everyone. But I want my focus as I come here to be on me. Oh, I can easily say, well, you're tempted. Of course you're tempted. I mean, look at all the temptations you have to face. Look, look at all the things you're choosing to do. Oh. But the focus needs to be on me. I'm being tempted. I'm being tempted all the time. My desires are at war within me. Your focus should be on you. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is the serpent tempting you right now. So temptation is with you. It waits for you when you wake up. It's with you all throughout your day. It's there with you as you rest your head to go to sleep, luring, enticing your own desires. You, yourself, your desires at war with you to bring you into sin. We all share a temptation to sin. But not only that, number two, we all share a fall into sin. You see this in verse 6, the second half. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And here we see the sin. Oh, we saw the temptation, but here we see the sin. Just as James tells us, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Here we see the disobeying of God's command. I think that's one of the simplest definitions we can have of sin. It's disobedience to God. She took of its fruit and ate. He ate the tree God said not to eat from. He gave them every other tree to eat from. There was only one. A simple command and disobedience is what results. There's nothing elaborate here about the description. Based on their own desires, they chose to disobey God and simply eat the fruit, and everything changed. Interesting as we look at it, the serpent did not force them to eat it. God did not force them to eat it. Nothing about creation forced them to eat it. What we have here is their desire. They desired it, and therefore they chose to 
do it. They ate. But again, my point is not just Adam and Eve. We all share a fall into sin. The fact is we all choose disobedience. We all experientially know sin. We've made that choice to disobey God at some point in our life. If you're anything like me, multiple, multiple, multiple times. Millions of times. And yet, what can we say about sin? First of all, sin is not forced upon us either. Rather, it is chosen because we desire it. Desire conceived giving birth to sin. We teach a radical corruption of humanity, an inability not to sin. Yet, it is not as though we are choosing sin with a gun to our head, being forced to do it. What do we know? We actually want to sin. As a little toddler, I wanted to lie, to throw tantrums, to defy my parental authority with my little no. I was not forced against my will to sin. My parents were not coaxing me at all in that direction. I didn't have a peer group of other little toddler-olds saying, all right, now when your parents say this, say no. I didn't. I wanted to sin. My will is so corrupted. I not only wanted to sin, I actually delighted to sin. And as I grew up, I just got better at sinning. I learned how to curb my sin to avoid unwanted consequences and yet still pursue my sinful desires. My sinning became more clever, but that did not show a lessening of my wanting to sin. Rather, it showed of my wanting it even more. As an adult, I still want sin. Apart from the work of Jesus and the indwelling Spirit of God, my will, my want, would radically pursue after my desire to sin. A radical corruption of humanity that occurs here in the garden, but is true of every one of us. Here we read that the innocent becomes guilty. And innocence is lost. And it's true of each of us. But not only that, sin is called a slavery in Scripture, but it is a voluntary slavery. We are enslaved to sinful choice, and yet we choose its enslavement. In a way, we could say that humanity is addicted to sin. We are addicted to disobeying God. And this is true even of those of us who are Christians. We can call ourselves recovering sin addicts. Because that's what we are. Always with this faint aroma of sin still lingering on our breath. The needle marks of sin still fresh and observable. Truly, our addiction has been ultimately crushed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we are awaiting the culmination of that glorious victory in Him where sin will no longer remain in us. But 
here on earth, we still face the reality that sin remains in us. Defeated, but not yet vanquished. So we should understand what it means for those who are still in the grips of sin. We should understand where they are, what they're going through. Still without hope of deliverance and recovery, these sin addicts, Because sin is a bitter tonic that humanity eagerly drinks up, often regrets the drinking of it, and then asks for more. Not only that, sin can be deceptive. We see here how the tempter sought to deceive Eve. And we read in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Eve was deceived. Sin can be deceptive. And yet we also read in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived. But what we find, while sin can be deceptive, they both chose to sin. So we choose disobedience, sometimes knowingly, sometimes naively, but always without excuse. Always without excuse. As Romans 3.19 reminds us, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world, every mouth stopped. No one is with an excuse. We all have no excuse. You say, well, what about those who are without the law? Well, Paul talks about that. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For the Gentiles who do not have a law, who by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their heart. Without excuse. We're sinners. And even though sin can be deceptive, we still stand before God without excuse for our sins. We choose disobedience. Our desire gives birth to sin. We choose disobedience towards God, each of us without exception. Number three, we all share a punishment for sin. We all share a punishment for sin. And this is the rest of the chapter here, 7 through 24. And the punishment, as James described it, is the sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's what we see promised by God. Do not eat of the tree, lest you die. What does the tempter say? You shall not surely die. But what do we find throughout the rest of the chapter? It's death. It's destruction. We see the death of their innocence. Look at verse 7. They ate. They sinned. They disobeyed God. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here is the death of their innocence. Here is the beginning of guilt and shame. In fact, we read in chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked when God created them, and unashamed. Creation was very good, and mankind in it was innocent, naked and unashamed, but this was changed by sin. Because of their shame, they sought covering. 
They sought these fig leaves to cover their shame. Not only that, but in, in the bringing of guilt, they sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. We see here the interjection of shame and guilt. This is part of the punishment of sin. The death of our innocence. But in all of their actions, in all of their activities, they could not remove their guilt or their shame. Their innocence was gone. It was dead. And they could not recover it. No matter how many leaves they sown, no matter how many places they hid, they felt shame and guilt. And that is what comes from sin. But not only that, we see the death of their relationships. We see the broken relationship with one another. As God begins to question them, what happens? The accusations begin to fly. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll go hide together, maybe we'll stand together. Nope. Not what happens. Sin brings about a death in relationships, a broken relationship with one another. So when God comes, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit, and that's why I ate. All right, bus is coming. Whoosh, right out in front of it. Here, let me sacrifice Eve to you <laughs> so I can be saved. What happens with Eve? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But not only that, we even see in the curse the brokenness of relationship. We see that as he describes what is going to happen, specifically when it comes to the curse of the woman, verse 16, at the end of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, a desire to control a desire to be over him, and yet what? And he shall rule over you. This is not good news. This is the tension between the relationship of man and woman. Sin brings death. It brings death to relationship. And not only that, it's broken relationship with the rest of creation. We have the pains of childbirth that didn't exist before. We have the pains of working of the ground. We have the death of an animal to cover them. There's a broken relationship with the rest of creation that they were meant to tend. They were meant to care for. They were meant to protect. They were meant to be God's stewards of God's creation. And now that is broken. But above all, there's a broken relationship with God. What we describe as spiritual death. Ultimately summarized at the end of the chapter as a separation from God. Here in this garden temple of God, they were able to stand before God and worship Him and hear His words directly to them in this temple. And now they are cast out of it they are separated from God while there's a death of their innocence there's a death of their relationship there's also the death of their bodies and God's curse to the man 
He writes there in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. There's a physical death that exists as well. This is also emphasized in the banishment from the garden so that they will not be able to eat of the tree of life. Their disobedience has cost them eternal life. Life that they could have had existing with God forever and yet now has been lost. We all share in this punishment. None of us are innocent. We know guilt. We know shame. We have felt it. We still feel it. Every time we sin, we're reminded that we are humanity has lost its innocence. This loss is experienced at a very young age. It's small little children's sin. We experience and share in the death of our relationships. Why is it so hard to get along with each other? I mean, not even, not even we're just talking about ourselves, but just in general. We, we have a broken world that's constantly at war with one another, whether they're, whether they're with, with, with weapons or with words, at war with one Why? Because we're broken by sin. This is the punishment of sin. That there is no true, lasting unity for sinful people. This brokenness with creation, this struggle, this toil, the brokenness with God, we experience it. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. Standing before God. And we all are familiar with the death of our bodies. None of us. None of us will live in this body forever. This body is rapidly decaying. My hairs are falling out. I have pains and joints I didn't even know I had. I didn't, we all are moving towards that. It's not a surprise for any of us that people die. Because death is now a part of us. As sinful human beings, we share in this punishment for sin. And it's not just Adam's sin, although he as the representative, but he represented us rightly because each one of us choose to sin. You may think highly of yourself that if you were in Adam's position, you would have done differently, but it's not true. You show that by the fact that you have chosen to sin in this life that he represented you correctly. And we rightly share in this punishment. But number four, in case you were thinking it was all bad news, we all share the only solution for sin. There's an interesting contrast here between Adam and Jesus. I mean, it's taken up by Paul in Romans 5. We talked about that last week, that sin entered the world by one man, yet righteousness 
The solution for sin comes through one man, Jesus Christ. In fact, as I was reading this, I was struck by the fact that there was a time, we don't know how long, it may have just been a second or a moment, it may have been longer, I don't know, where Eve had sinned, she had eaten, and Adam had not. One guilty and the other innocent. Yet what does Adam do in verse 6? She took of its fruit and ate, and then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam chose to selfishly sin, to follow his own desire and disobey, rather than selflessly mediate between God and now sinful Eve. An interesting contrast, because Jesus is this, the Son of God, become man who lived sinlessly in the midst of a sinful humanity. And here he is now, the innocent, sinless and Jesus Christ standing in the midst of sinful humanity. And what does He do? He selflessly sacrifices Himself on the cross to pay for our sins, to mediate between God and sinful man, to bring redemption to all who would believe in Him. This is what Jesus does. Where Adam fails, Jesus shines, succeeds, brings about the redemption of humanity. Oh, we see it other places here as well. We see it in this promise that is given here in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, as he's talking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As, as Paul picks this up in Galatians, he says the seed is Jesus Christ. He is the one who crushes the temptation to sin and the tempter. He destroys sin and death. There is no victory in death any longer. There is no, I didn't say that right. There is victory in death <laughs> now through Jesus Christ. Death, where is your sting? Because Jesus has crushed sin. And the punishment for sin is death. Now death has no sting because, this has no sting because sin is crushed. Jesus, the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent, the tempter, sin itself. Jesus is the covering for sin as God exemplifies in, in taking the animal as a sacrifice and taking its skin and covering. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate covering for sin as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, it is Jesus who is the way into the new garden heaven of God where we're told in Revelation the tree of life stands and gives off its fruit in season and we will eat of it. This new garden heaven of God and, and He is the way into it past the cherub with flaming sword directly into the presence of God the Father access to this tree of life access to eternal life forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We all share the only solution for sin. Moses pointing to it here in Genesis 3 and it is Jesus Christ. He is the solution. 
He is our hope. So what should we know today? That we are great sinners, tempted and choosing disobedience to God. That's who we are. But Jesus is a greater Savior. Our solution to our desire to sin, to our sinful choices, is only Jesus. As the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It is only Jesus. So how should we walk this morning? We should proclaim Jesus as the solution of your sin by trusting in Him today. Put your trust in Him alone, the only one who can pay for your sin. Proclaim Jesus as the solution to your sin by obeying Him today. He has solved our sin problem, our radical corruption, so that we might be obedient today. So that we might be able to say no to the temptation, no to our desires. Without Him, we are hopelessly disobedient, but in Jesus, we can live as obedient children of God. Today, right now. Proclaim Jesus as the solution to your sin in your worship as we sing about His power to save. Oh, glory in it. Revel in it. He is the only solution, so we should proclaim Him. And don't just sing here today. Get in your car and start singing. I know your family may not appreciate it, but just sing it. Sing His power to save. Proclaim Jesus in your prayers as your solution to sin. Plead His blood to keep you from sinning. Plead His blood to reveal your sin. Plead His blood to forgive your sin. Proclaim Jesus as a solution in your prayers. And proclaim Jesus as your solution to your sin, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your parents, to your grandparents, to your friends, to your families, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. Your solution in this life and the brokenness of this world is not your success at your job. It's not your wealth. It's not your good name. It's not your nice family. It's not your home. It's not weekends uh, to, to, to enjoy yourself. It's not your own strength. It's not your own determination. We as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, proclaim the solution to our sin and the solution to their sin, all our family and friends and coworkers and all, as always and only Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. For apart from him, we would still, we would still live in our voluntary enslavement to sin. Apart from him, we would still live under the radical corruption of sin in our life. But through Jesus, through Him, our hope, our Savior, our solution. We have new life. We can say no to sin. We can fight against temptation. We can look forward to the day when we will live with Him and sin will be gone. But it's through Jesus. So let us proclaim Him, Lord. As we sing now, Lord, let our hearts rejoice in what Jesus has done. In His name we pray. Amen.